We'd also like to thank Father Hannum, the parish priest, for allowing us the use of his hall. Thank you very much, Father. And I'll probably get strangled for this afterwards. I'd also like to thank Frank Swarbrick. Uh, he's the man who's done all the spade work, the phone calls, the uh, printing of leaflets, the distribution of leaflets, you know, all the foundation which goes into it, and then he disappears into the background. Well, as I say in Lancashire, go lad, Frank. Thank you very much, Frank. Now, um, this... It's not the first time that Dr. Mara has been in Preston. Three years ago, I know some of us in this hall were privileged to hear him speaking at Roper Hall on the question of the role of the laity in the church. And when I became cognizant of the fact that Dr. Mara was coming back to this country on Christian order, I looked eagerly down the itinerary to see if he was speaking in Preston. Of course, lo and behold, he was. Not only that... He was speaking on a subject which I think is one of the most burning, you know, the most important subjects in the church today, the question of the Fatima message. Now, to make sure I don't get anything wrong, Dr. Mara, uh, he was born, I don't think you mind me saying this, in 1928. He was educated by the Jesuits, so by happy coincidence we are tonight in St. Ignatius's, so one of his sons coming home. Um, Dr. Mara was later educated, I'll just read, Dr. Mara is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Fordham University, New York. He took both graduate degrees, MA and PhD, under Dietrich von Hildebrand. And if I can just interpose there, uh, today is the joint feast of St. Bede and St. Gregory VII, who was Hildebrand. So we have another little coincidence there. So he studied under Dr. Dietrich von Hildebrand. Uh, he's well known in the United States for his extensive lecture tours, most of which have been recorded. And he is the author of Happiness and Christian Hope. He is co-host with Father Vincent Michelli of a radio program which is syndicated in seven major cities, which is called Where Catholics Meet. He was a founder of the original Holy Innocent School, which was the first parent-managed school in the United States of America. Uh, sadly, since Dr. Mara came here, his wife died since in the last two years. But he, he is to find that there are four children, three strapping boys and a daughter. With no further ado, I would like to ask, uh, Dr. Mara to introduce us to the subject of Fatima, the hope of our times. Thank you, Dr. Mara. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Dear fathers in Christ and the Blessed Virgin and dear friends in Christ, I'm very pleased to be back in this town. I'm very pleased as the chairman noted, to be in a hall named after the great St. Ignatius and above all under the auspices of the Blessed Virgin. The theme of the talk tonight is light. And when one speaks of light, one speaks of its opposite darkness. Jesus Christ addressed words to his fledging church, to those few apostles and disciples. He said, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. So the Catholic Church, not just Fatima, but this extension of Christ in history, this prolongation of the Incarnation is said by the Founder itself, the Lord God, to be the salt of the earth, that which preserves what is good in human life, and the light of the world. And in the moment the Church falters, in the moment the light is hidden, the earth cannot ex uh, su succeed. 
The earth cannot prosper. It exists then in terrible darkness and one only sees psychedelic lights of madness and impurity. So I'm going to talk about Fatima in a kind of systematic way. What I want to do is use the theme of light. And I'm going to ask this question, what do we need to have a vigorous church which displays a vigorous flame of faith and charity and which indeed would light the world? So that will be the ingredient of a vigorous church so that the church can shine before men. I then want to note how when the church is vigorous or in whatever degree of vigor the church exists, its light, feeble or intense, lights up the world or keeps the world in shadows. And I want to look at some of the shadows in today's world. Some of them are far more ominous than shadows. They are deep caverns of darkness. And we ought to to be very concerned about this. We then want to know that if the world is in fact this dark, it's only because the church has failed to put its light in the world. The church exists. The truth exists in the church. The inner church has not betrayed her mission, cannot betray her mission. She has the same truth, the same sacraments, the same authority from above. But so many of us within the church have, have allowed, and some of us have conspired, to put the light of Christ under a bushel. And therefore, if you show me the world which is dim and dark, I can deduce that the church has not lived up to her mission. Because had the church lived up to her mission, there would be light in the world and music and beauty and human dignity. And these things fast go out. Lights of civility and morality are fast being extinguished and we are threatened by a terrible darkness. And this is why the message of Fatima becomes ever more urgent, as my dear friend Hamish Fraser would say. I then want to come to a brief meditation on the Blessed Virgin, and above all, the Blessed Virgin in her message of Fatima, to answer the question, what do we need to become brighter? I often remark when I speak to Marian groups that the revelation at Fatima is known so well by perhaps 1% of the Catholics. Every year they go to a rally. They know Marian priests. They read Marian literature. And the story of Fatima is better known to them than Dickens' Christmas Carol is known to the world at large. Every Christmas there is a good performance of the Christmas Carol in America and people know all about Scrooge. Well, so too, in certain Catholic families, Fatima is quite familiar. One speaks of Jacinta and Lucy. But among the 99% of the Catholics, Fatima is either ancient history or totally unknown. And I'd like to begin with this personal note. I have been educated all my life in Catholic schools. I had eight years with Sisters of Charity then in high school, four years, what we call high school, four years with the Jesuits, and they were marvelous years. They were the best years of my life. 
years when I could dream, years when I was proud of the church, years when I had serious instruction. Nevertheless, I got out in 1945, right after World War II ended, I had not yet heard about Fatima, and it took place in 1917. I then went to a Jesuit university in Michigan because I was so impressed with Jesuits as teachers that I wanted to study engineering, but only at a Jesuit school. So I went from the East Coast, 700 miles west to Michigan, and the irony is I didn't have any Jesuit teachers. They were mostly laymen. I had one Jesuit who taught mechanical drawing. It's not very exciting and not very religious. But in that group of freshmen, there was a young man who since has become a, a monk. He's a Franciscan conventional friar. And he seemed to us hysterical. He would go around the undergraduate population saying, we have, to, we have to pray to Our Lady of Fatima. He, he even mispronounced the word, Fatima. And I, what, what is this Fatima? And I, I probably read something about it, and then I put it aside because you may remember this. 1945, like the end of every war, is the era of good feeling. The bitterness is behind us. Peace has come. Prosperity has come. Let's forget the past and live and enjoy it. And boy, we're doing that with a vengeance. So I'm not even sure, I have no recollection now, that this poor young man made any impression on me. I had myself a kind of devotion to the Blessed Virgin, thanks to my mother and my father. But my mother, like most homes, it's the woman who sets the religious tone in the home and who instructs the children in prayer. So we would have a family rosary. I was a bit embarrassed if my mother would kneel for it. I mean, that's the way I was, at least as an adolescent. But I had devotion to the Blessed Virgin. I certainly loved many things Marian, but I did not know Fatima that well. And it seems to me that Fatima has become urgent in my own mind only the last 10 to 15 years, Precisely because the message of Fatima is, if anything has been empirically proved, the message of Fatima has. Uh, the, the message said certain things are happening, certain errors will spread, certain things have to be done by Catholics in order to prevent that, and almost like a script, those predictions and warnings have been acted out and we find ourselves in an incredible valley of darkness. We are fearful of war, but war is not the most fearful thing. I used to say in some of my lectures, people, there's an American general who said war is hell, General Sherman in the American Civil War, and no doubt that's true. I have only been in the military during peacetime. I mean, I fought the Korean War in Germany, and it's kind of safe to do that. But even in basic training, you see all these bullets whistling past you, and you look at movies. War is hell. But there's something much more serious. Hell is hell. War lasts six, seven years. War kills the body. Hell lasts forever. And one is in hell because there has been a mortal wound, 
not against flesh and blood, but against the soul. So I'm not at all impressed by this hysteria that the main thing in our decade is to stop nuclear weapons, have a freeze, march on the commons, and, and if only the mothers can push their baby carriages in front of the uh, nuclear weapons plant, we'll have peace. No, that pseudo-message is very popular among precisely those who will not listen to the Blessed Virgin. The Blessed Virgin talks of sin as linked to war. And all of this popular demonstration but weakens the little will that, that exists in any case to resist this monstrous tyranny. I want now to look at my first point. What do we need for a healthy church which would be healthy enough to radiate the light of Christ to the world? And I speak Partly from imagination and, and uh, meditation, I, I ask myself, what do we need? I also speak partly from memory. I'm old enough to remember the last glory of the church. I'm also smart enough to know there were many problems. I do not pretend that when I went to high school and college, things were perfect. Nevertheless, I saw there certain models which have inspired me, and I know if ever the church is to be restored to health, these models absolutely must come back and must be even deepened and purified, otherwise there is no salvation. Now the first thing we need for the health of the church is a pious clergy with sound and deep faith. There is no substitute for holy priests. And we laity know this most of all. If you have a priest who is a saint, the saying goes, the laity will be pious. If you have a priest who is pious, the laity at least will be good. If you have a priest who is merely good in a kind of mediocre way, the laity will be less than good. So we absolutely need sound, dedicated, holy priests. And the popes have recognized this. They have begged for vocations and still more. They have tried, not always successfully, to have seminaries where serious vocations are nurtured so that this marvelous calling is not destroyed by error. So that's the first thing. Pious, holy clergy with sound faith. We need the fullness of orthodox teaching on every level from the very kindergarten class right up through university and seminary. We need printed words faithful to Christ and to his teaching church. And I might as well interrupt here and say I am in the city of Preston and Frank Swarbrick of this city puts out these marvelous editions of printed words. I have some samples here. The last time I came through, I read through quite a bit. I even ordered a few hundred bulk mail, but it's not easy to do commerce between America and the United Kingdom. And I urge people here, if you wonder what does the church teach, where can I find out what popes are saying, where can I find what is true, why don't you look over the offerings, not only of Frank, but of other people here. They, these things are indispensable. Sometimes you say, what good is a printed word? Nobody reads it. And especially if you're the wife 
of the editor or something. My husband's coming home with all these boxes of, of flyers and everything else. Who reads them? They're cluttering up the basement and all that. But dear friends, one postcard, one holy card, with a little prayer on it, through God's providence will find its reader. Much more inspiring words from, from the church, from the pope, from the saints, inspiring stories of the laity, these play their role in God's own providence. It's not instant. You don't instantly get a million people marching behind you. But when the truth exists in any medium, the providence of God will find those recipients who are worthy of it. So we absolutely need printed word with sound, inspiring doctrine. And this has to be sophisticated books. It has to be popular pamphlets. It has to be postcards, uh, printed prayer cards, many, many things. The diocesan press has to be sound, inspiring. It has to have truth for its theme, not popularity. We need solemn public prayers worthy of God. This is not only a precondition for the healthy church, it is the flower of the healthy church. When the church has God on its mind, then every work of the church has this noble beauty which attracts people to it. The church is the bride. The bride is irresistible in her bridal attire, in her dignity, in her solemnity, in her holy joy. And this is what has always attracted people to this mystery of the bride. And our liturgy must be absolutely worthy, so far as we poor humans are able, of addressing itself to God. It's not a party in which we have a good time and we blow up balloons and we dress like clowns and we have stupid music. This is not worthy of the bride. This is worthy of the harlots who have their revelry at other places. We need organizations of faith like the Sodality. Now, the Jesuits started the Sodality and even in my day it was weak in America it really meant militant men. Nowadays, I find most of the serious workers, or many of the serious workers, I think most, are women in pro-life, in fighting sex education, in fighting for catechetics. And it's unfortunate. Where are the men? Sometimes the men show their virility by looking at football games. That proves they're men. And they leave their poor wives and sisters to to do the work. But the Jesuits used to have a sodality of men who did not think it offended virility to fight for Christ and to accept the Blessed Virgin as the woman in their life. We need that. We need things like rosary societies, legions of Mary, the Legion of Mary, since Frank Duff has died. And since many clergy, for one reason or another, have either died or abandoned it, in America, I do not think the Legion of Mary has any impact. Whereas 20 years ago, I saw its impact. I hear in this area or in certain areas, it's not quite so weak. 
But this is part of the vitality of the church, the vigorous organization. They don't make the television. You can't give a press release that the Legion of Mary met and 15 people decided to pray for this person and to bring Christ to the hospital. That's, we don't care about that. That's the glamour of, of, of uh, the media. But the Legion of Mary, in its quiet way, brought the faith and therefore hope and joy into so many lives. We need that. We need a private prayer life of the faithful. There's so much of this, uh, people are organizing into stadiums, and, and they're having all of this public prayer, which has its place, no doubt, provided there's dignity, but we need a rigorous, vigorous prayer life one by one. We come together in public worship, above all in Holy Mass, and we need a private prayer life of our own. We need families which nourish a Christian lifestyle in peace and in charity. And I think this is one of the frightening things, too. When you see parents bickering with each other, and then when you see this lack of courtesy between the spouses, and then between the children and the spouses, this is not Christian. The Christian home has all kinds of problems, it ought to have this peace in the Lord. It ought to have courtesy between the adults and the children. Given all this, if, if such things have ever flourished or ever do flourish, the church flourishes. And as I say, I have a memory when in my youth of a church which was something like this. I couldn't right now point to many weaknesses, but that was the direction it was going. To just give you one instance, just when Vatican II and the stupid press, above all surrounding Vatican II, destroyed Catholic education, just then Cardinal Newman was being read all over the Catholic educational system. And the minute, the minute Hans Kuhn came along, the minute the heretics came along, Newman's works literally were dumped on the sidewalk. One student called me up. She said, Doctor, this bookstore is closing down. There are cases of Newman on the sidewalk. And by the time I got there, they had been picked up by the garbage. And all the great works, seminaries closed, everything closed. These marvelous pamphlets used to exist in which you got solid piety and solid teaching gone in the name of relevance, in the name of cultural silliness. So much then for what is a healthy church. Now, whatever the given health of the church is at any time, it meets the world. Christ said of us in the church, you are in the world, you must not be of the world, but we necessarily exist in the world. We, we, uh, we have government intersections with our lives, we pay taxes, we ride conveyances, there's entertainment, there's the law, there's medicine, there's an interaction between the city of God and the city of man between the world and the supernatural city. The church ought to be the salt of this world, the leaven of this world. Christ says a few measures of yeast and the whole dough rises. So too, real Catholics, real parishes, real literature, committed Christians, committed families, when they are in the midst of the world, they leaven it labor unions, guilds, everything, the entertainment itself is changed. 
because a Catholic who believes in God is present there. The church is the light of the world. It shows a way out from paganism. We don't know that enough today. Instead of understanding the glorious mission of the church, many people in the church act as if the church is wrong, stupid, behind the times, and our only hope is to adopt the world's philosophy and entertainment and dress and, and, and style as if the world is happy. But they don't know that the world is desperate, in despair, hopeless, in the dark. They're winding down in a spiral of unspeakable inhumanity. And we Catholics, because of Jesus Christ, not because of our own merit, we have the one way out, the way out from hopelessness, despair, hatred. We have this light which we absolutely have to mediate to our contemporaries. How are we doing, though? Let's look at the world. First of all, we see crime statistics. In my last stop off, or perhaps uh, at Nottingham, one of, my, uh, one of the hosts there is an officer in a prison. And he said the prison is having housing problems, that the, the number of people serving life terms has doubled and tripled and quadrupled. So they're living wall to wall. And this is the same way that that's a real boom in the building construction industry, constructing prisons. And for everyone in prison, there's ten people who should be in prison, but we have no place to put them. So I don't have to do that. If, if anyone needs uh, to be convinced that crime is spiraling, come on to, to New York. Just, just come over to New York and see if you get back with your shirt. And in almost any city. You've all, we've all heard about the sexual uh, explosion and the better penalties. Venereal diseases skyrocketing, even in those countries with that wonderful sex education, including Scandinavia. We, and now we have this new one, AIDS, that new disease, AIDS, which is an exotic disease. We have bad marriages, which are the real agony of life on earth. Life is never that easy. No one ever says that uh, uh, life is one uh, poem or life is one ballad to the moon. There are all kinds of problems from the health point of view, the financial point of view, little misunderstanding, but there used to be a basic integrity of the family. And that's the rarest thing going. You meet so-and-so with children, and the first question is, is this person with his spouse or her spouse? because the statistics get more and more depressing. We have pornography, which is unspeakable. And, of course, we have abortion. To my mind, this is the test case of everything else. I don't care how good a person is in his denunciation of one thing and in his, in his uh, enthusiasm for something else. If he can keep a... Uh, if he can be bored or objective in the face of abortion, it tells me he, he is in a desperate situation, that we sleep well at night while innocent humans are being killed is something that could, future historians will not believe this. 
Sometimes if we know that there's one injustice or, or if an animal is being tortured, we're so, so excited. But day after day, people are being killed, and they're not killed by hooligans, by muggers. That's understandable. That's another problem. They're killed by the elite of the profession, the medical doctors, supported by the lawyers and judges, supported by many clergy, who at least by their silence, and sometimes by their positive encouragement, allow this abomination. And then they talk of this hypocrisy. There's all this, hip uh, uh, this hypocrisy that we're so worried about, weapons of war. Well, they are horrendous, but at least some of the weapons of war may be aimed at an aggressor army and therefore have a moral use. Whereas there's no such thing as a morally neutral or morally acceptable abortion. And we have this scandal in America, and I'm afraid it has crossed over. Some of the most prominent politicians in America are Catholic, some Irish, some Italian. One sees them pictured in church leading a procession. They uniformly for abortion. They fund it. Oh, they're personally opposed to it. But in the moment they become senator or governor, they fund it. They sign bills. They sign bills affirming gay rights. We even had a Jesuit priest, Father Drynan, dean of the law school of Boston College, who served in the Congress, and he voted for almost every abortion measure going. This is a son of St. Ignatius. Do you wonder why Fatima is urgent? Catholic priests serving in the Congress we have a Catholic nun serving as a bureaucrat in Michigan, both of them signing bills authorizing money for abortion. And you're worried about nuclear weapons? You should be worried that nuclear weapons will be God's instrument to erase the infamy of your being silent or still worse, you're positively pushing this abomination. And, of course, there's dope and everything else. Now, therefore, we're not doing well in the world. Sometimes I give a lecture, and the sense of the lecture is, aren't things wonderful? And I blink my eyes and try to be courteous, and then I say, are you talking about planet Earth? Things are wonderful? They tell me about all the great things. Now, there is some progress in air conditioning, jet aircraft, uh, plumbing. Things are better there. But on the things that matter, I think things are horrible. It's horrible to try to raise a family. It's horrible to try to get any serious religious uh, discussion started. That when, wh Whether one looks at old age or youth or education or seminaries or publications or porno, that it, one hears the screams of hell and one sees the sight of hell. Things are not good. Well, then how, things, how are things in the church? Well, we, we could deduce that they're not good. If things were good in the church, the state, the, the government, the, the world would have light in it. But the very fact that the world is now in tremendous darkness tells us that the church has a great problem. And don't, this is not from a, an upstart visit to, to your continent. The popes have understood this. 
that Pope Paul himself said the smoke of Satan has entered into the church. And if you read attentively this Holy Father, he has things which 20 years ago would not be believable. He apologizes to the faithful for scandals in the liturgy. A pope apologizing to faithful people in the name of his fellow bishop for scandals in the liturgy, and he could go on and on and on. And let's just note a few things about our holy church. Some statistics are down. Religious vocations, vocation to the priesthood, mass attendance. Despite all this vigorous renewal, despite this, all these commissions and workshops and all of the money spent, and all the, the mimeographed paper about how wonderful everything is, things spiral down. Humanly speaking, the church seems to have a death wish. Once in a while, a little fire will flare, and people get a little encouragement, and then it burns out, and things spiral down and down. Some statistics are up, though. Not everything is spiraling down. Divorce is up. Divorce and remarriage is up. Seminary closings are up. Everywhere you go, magnificent abbey-like uh, enterprises which once had 100, 200, 300 students and professors, they now have 20 or 30. They're closing down. One of the most important and most beautiful in New Jersey is going to be sold for high-rise apartments. Progress. Things have never been better. And then... Archbishop Quinn of San Francisco, three years ago at a Roman synod, he was trying to push Rome to, quote, abandon the ban on contraception. These people still insist that it's up to the will of the Pope whether contraception is a sin or not, artificial birth control. They act as if artificial birth control is like the Latin Mass. The Pope can order it or suppress it. They don't understand that when it comes to contraception, the Pope but teaches what is true. And he has no more ability to change that than he has ability to change the laws of arithmetic. You might say, Holy Father, people are so much in debt, please make it that three and three are twenty. So that when they pay three dollars and three dollars, they really get credit for twenty dollars. Well, you can pick at the Pope all you want, but three and three are six. So, too, contraception is evil. Now, Archbishop Quinn's favorite argument, which, he, of course, he hedges around with double talk, is that everybody's doing it. And now I notice your own Duke of Norfolk. I hope this is not impertinent of an outsider to say this. He has raised a stir with that discussion or uh, that address he gave before the Catholic Teachers Association. And just this evening... I read an article appearing in, in the Times by another man who, who was reinforcing the Duke of Norfolk, and their point is perhaps 80% of Catholic women within marriage, and perhaps outside of marriage, practice artificial contraception. And that's about the percentage of, of women in general. Now, a lot of people think, therefore, the Church should change its teaching. My conclusion is, therefore, 80% of Catholic marriages have this new sin. Oh, we all got sins. Marriage is not exempt from sin. But if it is true that who hears, Peter hears the church, 
If it is true that contraception is a sin, and if 80% of the couples don't see anything wrong with it, well, they're objectively committing sins, and those who should instruct them in marriage encounters, pre-cana conferences, sex education, sermons, diocesan literature and so on, are perhaps guilty of the sin of omission. It took a pope, a Polish pope from, from, from Rome, to come to America and to England to say publicly that contraception is evil. And as this article said, there was a stunning, embarrassed silence. Well, he'll leave soon. What a nuisance that he's upsetting our, 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 our understanding of marriage. Well, this, dear friends, Fatima message said, more souls go to hell because of sins of the flesh. Now, they're not the worst sins. The sin of pride is worse than fornication or adultery or contraception, but they'll do the job. I mean, the, the devil will get us one way or the other. He'd much rather get us hating God, hating our neighbor, but most of us don't even have enough uh, personality to hate deeply. So he'll get us with our soft life, slipping into these delicious sins of the flesh. Another reason why Fatima is relevant. Now, why has all this trouble started in church and in the world? Perhaps it's too much to say that the neglect of the Blessed Virgin Mary started all this trouble, but please at least admit this, it parallels all this trouble. When devotion to Mary was strong, most of these troubles were almost non-existent or they were far less serious. The minute devotion to the Blessed Virgin disappeared or became diminished, the troubles increased. It's like a seesaw. When Mary is high, the troubles are low. When Mary is low, the troubles are high. That is indisputable. Whether one is the cause of the other, we're not one to, well, I'm not insisting now. I claim, though, that the Blessed Virgin has a causal relationship to the troubles in the church and therefore to the troubles in the world. Apart from statistics, never mind all these deplorable statistics, every one of us should sense that our church is divided in a profound way. Most people think that the division is not serious, that it's merely a question of liberals versus conservatives. The conservatives like the old way and the liberals like the new way. And if only change had not come so quickly, everybody would be happy. But that has not. That, the, this liberal conservative thing may work in politics or in plumbing. It has nothing to do with religion. What religion deals with is truth. Not whether it's the old way or the new way or something like that. And the division in the church is rooted in loss of faith on the part of many teachers and writers. Uh, it's, law, it's rooted in this uncertain teaching, even this contradictory teaching, which you can find. That you go to this priest, contraception is bad. You go to that priest, it's not so bad. You go to this priest, it's wonderful. All priests. And they're right in the diocesan press. And they, they are never rebuked. Please stop the machine and turn the cassette over at this point without rewinding. The program continues on the second side.
We have cardinals thinking that's okay. We have priests thinking abortion is okay. We have professors of sacred scripture casting doubt on the virgin birth, on the resurrection of Jesus, and so on. So there's confusion which comes not from God but from Satan. God is the God of truth and of light, not of confusion. We have failure to communicate truths of Catholic faith and morals to the younger generation. Hamish Fraser from Scotland had hoped to be here tonight because Fatima is his great love and he and I are dear friends and uh, he had not been feeling well and therefore he was not able to make it. But he has so many memorable sayings and one of them is, uh, is this, as things now stand, there is no normal way to communicate the faith to the next generation. The typical channels of communicating our faith, the press, the pamphlet, the schools, are abandoning us. They, so far from communicating the faith, they communicate errors, poisons, the anti-faith. So he said, there, so if anybody is going to communicate the faith, it's do it yourself. This is the problem. Don't expect, if you send your youngster to this prestigious school with monks running it, your youngster is going to come back thinking like St. Benedict. He's going to come back thinking like some updated progressive who is very embarrassed by St. Benedict or St. Ignatius or St. Dominic or anyone else. The most deplorable thing, of course, if you ask how did it happen or what is happening, it's this collapse of sexual morality. Sex, as I say, is not the most important thing. Impurity is not the most important sin. But impurity has a way. Fornication, pornography, uh, uh, adultery, and then the consequence of all this abortion. It has a way of destroying the rest of one's personality. It has a way of going to the root of a personality. If you find out your, your son is a thief, if you find out your son uh, is a glutton and so on, that, and lazy, doesn't want to have a job, that, that's unfortunate. But if you find out your son is impure, he's damaged in a far more serious way. So too with a woman. And when we have impurity, celebrate it in this permissive society. When we have sex education courses encouraging it all, this saps the resistance. We are so compromised, so many of us, because of this lusting after impurity. Now, could the Blessed Virgin Mary have helped prevent all this? And of course the answer is yes. And I want now to note how I say this should be and can be again. Suppose in the seminaries, we had a Marian stress again. Some of the most beautiful priests and bishops I know, in fact, all of them. Whenever I meet a bishop or priest who impresses me as a Catholic, I find in this bishop or priest a tender devotion to the Blessed Virgin, which began, if not in his home, then in the seminary, that Cardinal Carberry comes to my mind, but some of my finest priest friends, that they are not ashamed to acknowledge that the Blessed Virgin is the woman in their life. Archbishop Sheen has a tape which has a kind of racy title, The Woman I Love. 
And that will ensure that he'll sell a million. Pre, uh, bishop in love with a woman. But obviously when you get the tape, it's the Blessed Virgin. And it's a powerful talk. And I say that when, therefore, if we, when, again, we have seminaries where, where the cult of the Blessed Virgin is at least not suppressed, ridiculed, and above all, when it is encouraged, and you need holy priests. I cannot lecture to a seminary about how they conduct themselves, but they would do well to import a spiritual director a person with a tender devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. That, and such a priest, therefore, will be zealous to build up the faith of the faithful, not just in Marian devotion, but the fullness of the Catholic faith. When we have these priests who are formed by the Mother of God in their piety and in their theology, they will be eager to teach the people, young and old, the simple Marian prayers. Whenever I meet a good family, whenever I see, whenever I see that Christ dwells in the family and the theme of the family is not bickering and secular success, but a tender Christian courtesy, I try to find out how. How come? And it's usually because Father so-and-so came here. Sometimes I, in London, there was a very touching woman and she said a phone call to Father Twaits changed her life. That she has five children and there was chaos in the home. She called up this marvelous Jesuit priest, Hugh Twaits. And he simply said, start saying the rosary every day. Now that's not big news. You don't, you, you don't need a, a, a big press to tell you that. But she hadn't thought of it. Or having thought of it, she was afraid to do it. He encouraged her. And finally he settled for one Hail Mary. She said, even that Hail Mary said by her daughter, before her daughter goes to the stupid school, has changed things. And when you have really formed priests who are convinced of the beauty and lovability of the Mother of God and of the fact that the Mother of God shows to the world her Jesus Christ, her Son, you will teach the young and the old, the rosary, the angelus. Most of them don't know it. Some people can have gone through 16 years of Catholic education. They cannot make the sign of the cross. Oh, but they know all about Teilhard de Chardin. They know about six ways of contraception. They know about voodoo and Hinduism. That, yes, because we're educating the elite. But to make the sign of the cross has become an embarrassment for so many people. Suppose... Suppose... Uh, uh, and, and this I want to mention because of the Duke of Norfolk's uh, uh, controversy. I am very sympathetic to the problem and to the complaint that in certain marriages there is the problem of children which seem to come too often and too many. That there is in certain cases a need to space children. Not in most cases. The way most people look upon it a baby is the greatest disaster in the world. It's just, the only thing worse is the atomic bomb. But the pregnancy is a disease. But, and these people have a problem about the nature of marriage. But one knows cases where the health of the woman, the finances, the, the situation is such that another pregnancy could be dangerous or even fatal. 
Now, in this moment, this married couple desperately needs a priest who, number one, will not compromise on the truth. Most priests, in order to be pastoral, will suppress the truth and tell her to go ahead with contraception. But a true pastor wants to guard the sheep and the lamb, and he'll say, I'm sorry. This is the will of God, and it's a mysterious will. It's difficult. But if the laity know that truth says contraception is a sin, and if they know that sin is something horrible, they at least will have an incentive to to refrain from the sin. And if now this priest shows a real concern, if he tries to strengthen them to yield to God's will, if finally he is concerned enough to understand natural family planning, not to dismiss it stupidly. This is the way Catholic families grow in strength. Most of life is kind of easy. It's not all that hard to obey most of the commandments. But one gains strength when the commandments are tough. Then we become purified as gold in a fire. But then we desperately need holy priests to support us. And we support them. When people in marriage are willing to take the burdens and the difficulties of marriage and the difficulties of temporary or perhaps permanent abstinence, this encourages the morale of the priests. But when we start whining for the pill, they start whining for a wife. Everybody wants to get married. The married people want to get divorced. The nuns want to be priests. There's chaos in the world. But this is Christian charity. We support each other. We are pilgrims. It's not an easy road. But there is this serenity in living in the faith. And the priests, are they, they pay the biggest price. And the religious, they have the greater reward. That reward can even start now if we pray enough for them and they understand their, their mysterious cooperation in the work of God. So this is, and a Marian priest has this sensitivity and this, this charism to, to, in a tactful way, be very pastoral by insisting on the truth, not evading it in this cowardly way so many are doing. Suppose we had homes where Mary is the model and inspiration and consolation of the women. My dear Italian mother, she was born in New York of an Italian parents, she always had pictures of the Blessed Virgin everywhere, and they were not artistically good, but no doubt whenever she had hard days, just looking up to the Blessed Virgin, she understood something of the vocation of motherhood because she had this, uh, she had this relationship to the mother of God. So a Marian home, therefore, allows the women to have this great consolation and role model, instead of finding, instead of using a movie star or one of these executives in trousers who's so important and all this stuff, that's the new role. And what a boring, barren life that is. You ever talk to successes you know, on Broadway in, in New York or whatever? It's not all that glamorous. But that's it. Whereas the real model should be this tenderness of the Blessed Virgin. And as I said before, men need women in their lives, whether they're celibate or not. 
And every age of man and every condition of man needs the Blessed Virgin in one of her roles. We all need a mother. Whether our real mother is dead or not, we need a lady so that something chivalrous can be excited in us. We need, a, we need something lovable and beautiful so that whether we marry or not, we can have a true love relationship with the Immaculate. That's why uh, uh, Blessed Ma uh, St. Maximilian Kolbe is so magnificent. He had this unashamed love for the Immaculate. And this was not a sentimental thing. He was a real man, as subsequent events proved. Now, if all of this happens, clergy, homes, men, women, centered around the Blessed Virgin, now let false teachers come with their denials and doubts, doubting about angels, doubting a personal God, the divinity of Christ, doubting the ascension, the resurrection, we would silence and dismiss them. The fact that you can get one of these prestigious professors, Father Curran from America, Father Raymond Brown from America, and they will go from parish to parish, diocese to diocese, spewing out their, their error, and nary a voice raised against them tells us we don't have fighters. If we had Marian-centered homes and clergy and, and, and individuals, they would not allow this. They would push them aside. And still worse, let these apologists for abortion, fornication, adultery, sodomy, sodomy, excuse the indelicacy, means anal intercourse. That's what gay rights are all about. Gay rights have nothing to do with the fact that I, a male, want to go with this other man to a movie. It means I want anal intercourse with the male. Now, do you know we have Catholic books out justifying this? The Catholic Theological Society of America authored five authors, two of them priests, professors at a seminary, one of them a nun, two other laymen. They put out a book called Human Sexuality, in which sodomy is sometimes the loving thing to do. And, of course, that's in our sex education courses. They're not all about birds and bees. Dear friends, when this kind of stuff happens, if we had Marian-formed people, we would burn the books. That's what a real man would do. That's what a real Christian Catholic would do when he sees these abominations being spouted with approval, or at least without a rebuke. They would not endure it. They have lived in the purity and innocence of Mary. When they hear this filth, it would be so foreign to their ears and to their spirit, they would throw it out. And finally, when you have these politicians, the scum of the earth, personally opposed to gay rights and abortion and everything else, smiling and, of course, showing up at church before the election, when you have these politicians pushing all of these abominations, you would vomit. That's the only word. Vomit it up. That's the one response to this. But we're not doing any of that. We're inviting them in 
There's one big happy family where, where differences are eroding, that this whole wonderful effort of unity seems to be succeeding. And, okay, this man is for abortion, but he's, he, he is for uh, public health and new highways. I mean, after all, you can't be right on everything. And we have this smiling treason in our churches. Now, is it too late? This is a, some people call me a prophet of doom, but that's quite wrong. I'm not prophesizing doom. I'm seeing it. I'm a journalist of doom. The answer, here is the relevance of Fatima, and I beg you to be aware of what Hamish Fraser is saying. Fraser, to me, is one of the lights of the 20th century. There's a man, he was part of the communist movement in 1935 in Spain. He was converted to the church, he tells me, because one of his friends, John Campbell, gave him a pamphlet, The Power of the Printed Word, about the social teaching of Leo XIII, Fraser has since understood so much of Catholic teaching, he has especially understood the relevance and urgency of Fatima, and it's so clear, once one hears what Fatima has said, what does it involve? It involves, first of all, a, an apparition, not a million times, a few times, to three young children who are tending sheep. The apparition concerns a country, Russia, which in those days was involved in World War I, but in no way was considered a threat to anyone. And the message said, this country, this strange land of Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and the Tsar, and also of cruelty and treason and schism, this land, Russia, will spread her errors throughout the world. That was the prophecy. 1917, it's made. Russia has no power whatsoever. Two short years later, a communist government is installed. The communist government, through one of the most vicious, organized networks, through one of the cruelest of all suppressions in the history of the world, through a tremendous dedication, has in fact spread her errors of atheism, anti-family, anti-morality, anti-Christianity throughout the world, throughout most institutions, throughout many church institutions, such that we have Catholic Marxists. And we have Jesuit priests in Central America talking about liberation theology. And the Blessed Virgin had an answer to this threat of atheistic communism. Not the United Nations, the last best hope for the world. Friends, if I believed that, I would be a pessimist. There is no hope. If you think the UN is our last best hope for peace, forget it. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. That's all I have to The Blessed Virgin had three simple recipes, easy to enunciate, hard to do. Prayer and penance and allegiance to one's vocation in life. And that's awfully tough. Prayer. 
personal prayer, family prayer, public prayer, real prayer, penance, which none of us likes, at least when it was imposed upon us, even though we might have grumbled, we acquiesced. And therefore I think the Lenten fast and the Friday absence is excellent. And I saw some good writings in one of the Catholic newspapers in response to some editorial that some priest had written, an editorial about how wonderful things are without penance and let's choose our own. This unsigned letter said, it's far better that we have fish on Friday, absence on Friday and so on, and singing the praises of little penances. None of us has been asked to go to the Gulag Archipelago and undergo these cruel torments. But these little denials are important. And then faithfulness to our vocation in life. Priests are priests, not psychologists, not politicians, not anti-war resistors and so on. Married people are married, not little priests, running around looking like little priests, extraordinary ministers. We have 80 extraordinary ministers in my parish, by the way. I no longer go to that parish. Forty men, forty women busying themselves being priests. Three priests sitting down. The women don't want to teach their children. Day nurseries are the, are the heaven-sent thing of women's liberation. Oh, I'll have the baby because there's no other way yet until we get in vitro fertilization. But once that poor kid is three years old, get a day nursery, a night nursery, a summer nursery, a winter nursery, anything. No, the, the fathers don't want to be centered in the family. Well, this is it. So when it comes to the private remedies for the disasters in the world, they're easy to state, prayer, penance, and dedication to one's vocation. Then comes the public remedy. And it sounds so strange, and one almost thinks that it, it's um, too insistent that it seems as if Russia, not the world, but this strange country called Russia, which is now incorporated into the so-called Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, with many non-Russian republics there. But when we, when the Holy Father, in union with most of the bishops of the world, publicly consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, that is the requisite, the turning point will come. Russia will be converted. If that does not happen, and it has not happened, and it looks more bleak by the day, it seemed as if we might have gotten it very recently, May 29, March 29th, March 28th, because the Holy Father had a kind of consensus of the bishops, so one heard. But again, he said the world. Now, I know the world includes Russia, but I think the Blessed Virgin knows the difference. But when one mentions Russia, that's kind of embarrassing. The world is vague enough to include everyone. So those are the things, and what we have to do is this, that what is the urgent message for all of us? Well, those private things to me are more urgent than even the public one. We had better take seriously heaven's admonition to us, our Blessed Mother, in an apparition which is totally authentic. There's no chance this could be an illusion. There was a public uh, a proof of it with the miracle at Fatima, 
the very words are now, were once prophetic, are now part of history and have been vindicated. And when this apparition warns us about prayer and penance and dedication to one's state in life, warns us about all sin because wars are the result of sin, nothing else, warns us to amend our lives in every respect, which includes impurity, and impurity includes all of these adulterous liaisons, fornication, pornography, and then, of course, abortion and contraception in a different sense. The sin of contraception is not necessarily the sin of impurity. It's always the sin of irreverence, which is a different problem. It is sometimes very often linked with the sin of impurity. Well, let's take this to heart. Let us, within our own homes, start some sort of prayer life with those members of our family which remain. The best thing is to start when the child is an infant. I remember a good Jesuit priest. When we were 18, we used to have good religion courses in high school. And even then we were thinking of marriage, which is not a bad time. You're 18 years old, you're thinking of marriage within five years. So we were asking questions like, what is the best way to raise children? And he had this idea that the minute a baby is born, you make visits to the church with the baby, the father and the mother or both or what. You have a statue in the home and you kneel down before the statue and say the prayers so that by the time the child awakens to the atmosphere in the house, it's already Catholic. It's already Marian. He has heard the Angelus in the morning and at noon. He has, heard, he has seen the flickering lamp. He sees the flowers during the seasons of the year. And in this way, the faith is absorbed in the atmosphere instead of in this dry, instructional way. Sometimes that's also necessary, absolutely necessary. But the idea of Christ the King, as Fraser notes, is that everything around us should remind us of heaven and the church and Christ. Christ is the king of our house. Our garden should be the king of our profession. Crucifixes and statues should be in our schools, should be in the law courts, should be in the hospitals. But Christ is not there. Antichrist is there. The symbol is not the crucifix, it's the surgeon's scalpel as he cuts out the next baby from there. We, the final point would be, therefore, is in the papacy. I am going to organize a little congress in New Jersey with the help of Keep the Faith, and the title is going to be Three Against the Devil. And the three will be the most blessed sacrament, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and the papacy. They are not equally important, but they are the answer to the crisis today, and we are blessed with a Marian Pope. On his coat of arms, there's the big M for Maria. He is undeniably a lover of the Blessed Virgin Mary. There's no impure look in his face. He has this freedom of someone who loves the Immaculate. He has this tremendous enthusiasm for Marian devotion, and he radiates the supernatural. 
He's not simply a, a, a media figure who, who runs around the world and then uh, what's happening seems to be people know he's popular, they get behind him, the minute he leaves, they pour out their drivel and say, well, we're following up the Pope's visit. In America, he was there and he gave magnificent talks. Five minutes later on television, the heretics were there with their Roman colors. They got them from the closet. Telling us what the Pope said. The exact opposite. And that's what the way... So we, what we have to do is follow the Pope. He is the, not just the Bishop of Rome. Because he's Bishop of Rome, he has the primacy. He is the teacher of the universal church. We have to listen to him, read him. And with the Pope, let us pray to the Blessed Virgin Mary. And may I end with this prayer in which we uh, say the Magnificat, uh, the, the Angelus. I want to read it once and then read it a second time so that we can notice the first time some of the key words. Pour forth, we beseech thee, O Lord, thy grace into our hearts. And the moment we say that prayer, the word grace is restored to our vocabulary. A word you haven't heard in the last 20 years of stupid Bible translation. Favor is the word we now hear, if that. So that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ thy Son has been made known by the message of an angel, one does not hear of the angels or the evil angels. That simple angelus will give us this truth restored. May by his passion and cross, this is part of our Christian faith, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, but in the first place we celebrate this ominous and awesome passion and cross of Christ. There is no salvation except through the cross of Christ. We may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through Christ our Lord. Amen. So let me end with that now, instead of as a polemical address, as a prayer. Pour forth, we beseech thee, O Lord, thy grace into our hearts, so that we to whom the incarnation of Christ thy Son has been made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through Christ our Lord. Amen. We could have a few minutes of questions, then we could break up, okay? Because uh, would there be any discussion or questions? Yes, please. Um, can you tell me what the prophecies are that have already come true? The prophecies are already, you know, that Russia will spread her strategy, the lights in the, you know, the Aurora Borealis. I've got shoved into this. Um, as far as I can remember, I, I'm not giving the whole lot. Uh, she thought, our lady forecast that uh, the war would end soon. That, that this was the 1914-18 war. Now, what do you mean by soon? This was um, uh, 1917. The, the war ended the year after. She forecast that um, if people did not 
pray, if they did not do penance, that a second war would break out and it's, that its coming would be portended by lights in the sky. Now, I'm a bit, bit young, but some of you in the, in the hall maybe remember the Aurora Borealis in 1938, gentlemen there. And one, yes, one, yes, and a, a month, a month after that, it wasn't the Second World War didn't break out, Hitler occupied um, Austria. Now, that was really, in a sense, the beginning of World War II. Our Lady forecast lights in the sky that the, um, a second world, another World War would be coming. She also forecast that a great danger would come to the world out of Russia. And as Dr. Mara said, Russia, 1917, was on its knees. Being battered, two million people, two million soldiers were killed. It, it just looked, it's finished. Russia, a great danger to the world would come out of Russia and that Russia would spread her errors throughout the church, uh, throughout the world. Uh, now, that was a Freudian slip because Hamish Fraser, Dr. Mara's great friend, he takes the corollary that, that the, uh, the Russia will not just spread her errors throughout the world, she will spread her errors also throughout the church, which we are seeing today. Uh, what else did our lady forecast? Um... She said she was returning um, later on to ask for something. I think it was 1929. She asked for the consecration of Russia to the, the Immaculate Heart of Jesus and Mary. And that if this were done, and she said it would be done, but it would, uh, she said uh, that Russia would be converted and there would be peace in the world. And it wasn't conditional. It was conditional on Russia being, uh, what's the word, consecrated by the Pope and the bishops together but uh, that uh, the Russia would be converted. So that's, that's as far as I know. <laughs> uh, by the way, let's, we'll end with a prayer, but this young man gave me a very good question which I would like to answer or attempt to answer. Then we can end with a prayer and we can have a little informal meeting. There is, as you know, many apparitions besides Fatima have been reported. That Fatima took place in 1917. We have Garibaldi in 1962. In America, there are certain alleged apparitions of the Blessed Virgin. And finally, in Yugoslavia, one hears about these children there, these young people there, who have uh, apparently been visited by the Blessed Virgin. Now, the big question is, are all these apparitions from God? It's a very important thing because counterfeits are easy to confuse the people. That if you have the genuine article, then the devil spreads counterfeits and we get confused and we think everything's a counterfeit. But the young man said, suppose an apparition let's say in Yugoslavia or America, results in the fact that people amend their lives, say the rosary, go to the Blessed Sacrament. Could this possibly be from the devil? Because the words of Christ are, by their fruits, you shall know them. Now, if, let's say, the devil really inspired a certain apparition, that the Blessed Virgin did not appear, but the devil appeared, and nevertheless, this apparition is so powerful that people go home, say the rosary, amend their lives, go to Mass, and so on. Would this not be the case that the devil is against his, himself? 
So and a kingdom divided against itself will fall. So I think this is one of the most serious questions that one can ask. You know, in the Roman Catholic Church, we are always open to the fact that heaven can meet us in a private apparition. If God exists and the Blessed Virgin exists, it is not hard at all for God or the Blessed Virgin to appear to a nun or a layman or children or whatever. But we always say we wait for the decision of church authority. And sometimes it takes a long, long time. Sometimes there's tremendous opposition. Almost every time there's tremendous opposition as at Lord and at Fatima. There's still a lot of opposition to Fatima, not to Lord. But we say eventually the church ruling is decisive. And every supposed apparition is such that no matter how much you're allowed to believe in them, so long as they do not contradict faith and morals, but you always say what this Pope Urban had insisted, that in the moment church authority decides definitively, you follow that. But until then, the church has, church has decided in favor of Fatima. Popes have gone there, including above all this present Holy Father. But these other apparitions, Garabandal and above all Bayside and others, there have been resistances to be expected, but no approval, certainly not in Yugoslavia. And in answer to the young man's question, I think, it is perfectly possible that an apparition be false, be from the devil, and for a little while that is foster devotion and prayer and penance. In other words, the devil is intelligent. If he wants to convince you that it is truly the Blessed Virgin and not some fantasy who's appearing to you, well, of course he's going to use popular piety, he's going to use the rosary and so on, but the big question is, while you are restored to piety, while you go back to Mass, while you think you amend your life, do you find yourself going away from the Catholic Church? Do you find yourself forming a little clique or an elite? Well, then the devil will allow you for a few years to seem to be a very popular Marian movement, and then when he's got you sufficiently enthusiastic and sufficiently large, you're going to find yourself outside the church, and then, he, then it would be worth it. So for ten years or five years, you did praise God through the rosary, but as a consequence, you're out of the church. So I say that I would recommend absolute caution. Be open to heaven speaking to us. Don't be so proud as to say, nobody can talk to me that the revelation has never has ended with St. John. Private revelations can be true, have been true. But be extremely cautious and don't, be, don't say, well, merely because in the last one year, say, people have been restored to the sacraments, therefore it's true. The devil is willing to give you a few years, provided he can get you forever. So I have this open mind, but by no means do I think everything proposed as true is true.